I'll invite you to open up to Revelation for one last time. So we are going to do an overview of the book of Revelation this morning. My hope in this is just to make sure that we have context as to what we were going through in detail the last several months. Uh, This will mark the 40th message from Revelation. And this is the last one, so 40 messages in Revelation. So we have come through in quite some detail, and we're going to move up and out this morning, and we're going to get a view of the whole thing. Now, I've given you an outline. There's two outlines that you've grabbed. One is the bigger one, and I've tried to space it out enough to where you can jot down some notes there if you'd like. The other one is a little bit smaller, and I was hoping to make it about the size that you can just stick in your Bible at the beginning of Revelation, just so you can reference it if you need to. Um, They are J. Vernon McGee's outlines of Revelation. This is not my own outline, but I pulled this from J. Vernon McGee. The bigger one of the two is what I actually used to put together my notes for this morning. So if you're following along, you can follow along in that outline and it's going to pretty well match up with what I'm talking about. So just to give you a heads up there, don't be alarmed when we're still towards the beginning of the book, like several minutes in. You you may look up at the time and be concerned, but we are going to spend more time towards the beginning of the book and then pick up speed as we go through. Uh, So don't worry there. John wrote the book of Revelation in 95 AD when he was in exile on the island of Patmos. And he talks about that in the beginning of the letter. Revelation as a whole shows the work of Christ. And the work of Christ in Revelation is divided into three large parts. And those parts correspond with that divine outline in chapter 1, verse 19. What you have seen, what is, and what will be hereafter, after these things. The work of Christ is divided into the past, the present, and the future. And in your outline, you'll see that chapter 1, lining up with the things which John saw, That is the vision that he had of Christ in glory, the glorified Christ. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 is the person of Jesus Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 are the second main chunk of text. This is the possession of Jesus Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 deal with the church, the possession of Jesus Christ. The third big part is everything else, chapters 4 through 22. And this outlines the scene in heaven that we have in chapters 4 and 5, and then goes on to talk about the tribulation. This is all future events. The tribulation lasts until Christ comes back in chapter 19, um, with some parenthetical insertions in there, and we'll talk about those. And then chapter 19 through the end in 22, that is Christ's future work um, in perfecting creation. 
that takes us into eternity. So chapter 22, we are left with a view of eternity. Now, that is your, like, satellite view. Now we're going to come in a little bit closer. Let's look at this first chapter, the person of Jesus Christ, John's vision of Christ in glory. In verse 1, he writes the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the title of the book, right? Revelation. The word revelation is singular. It's not plural. Okay, so when you're referring to the book of Revelation, we want to use the singular revelation, not revelations. Okay, now in a sense, it is a collection of visions and signs, but the book is called Revelation, which God gave him to show his servants. Who did God give this revelation to? Jesus. God gave this revelation to Jesus Christ for what purpose? To show his servants things which must shortly take place. The word revelation is translated from the Greek apocalypsis uh, or apocalypse in our language, and it just means a revealing or an unveiling. What is it revealing? Well, it's the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. We talked about in chapter 22, I believe it was, that revelation is the testimony of Jesus. And it makes mention of that two or three times in that last chapter. Well, here it is in the first chapter. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Of course, that's John. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So there is a flow of this message being passed down. It starts with God. God gives this message to Jesus. Jesus gives this message to his angel, and the angel shows it to John. John writes it down, sends it out to the seven churches, and then it's passed down to us. So there's this ladder, if you will, of this message being passed down. Verse 3 is remarkable. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Blessed. This is the only book of the Bible that ascribes a special blessing to the one who reads, hears, and keeps the words of it. There's no other book in the Bible that attaches this kind of a blessing to it. There are plenty of places in the Bible that say you will be blessed if you read Scripture in general. This is the only book that ascribes blessing to the one who reads it specifically. Now, these things in Revelation are not just for our speculation, but for our application. We can't just read through these. You will be blessed if you read them, but don't stop there. Read, hear, and what? Keep. Keep is actually a military word 
and it means to guard or watch carefully over. So yes, in one sense, you have to do these things, that is keeping these things, but also guard them. We see a full frontal assault on the book of Revelation in our culture. We are to guard the things kept in this book. And why is it important to keep these things? It tells you in the last part of verse 3, for the time is near. We're getting closer and closer to seeing all of this come to pass. Now, into verse 4, we move into this greeting. And this greeting is from John, first of all, but also it's a greeting from Christ. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Grace to you and peace from the Father. You know, that, that is a designation for the Father, who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. In those couple of sentences, we have the Trinity. It's a greeting from the Trinity. Now, this term, the seven spirits who are before his throne, tends to trip a lot of people up. And it is a little bit confusing by itself. But when you zoom out to the verses that precede and come after it, it makes sense that it is the Holy Spirit. See, we have him who is, who was, who is to come, speaking of the Father. Then you have the seven spirits who are before his throne. Then you have Jesus Christ, faithful witness, and so forth. It's sandwiched between the Father and the Son. It makes sense that it's referring to the Holy Spirit. John, I already mentioned, is writing this in 95 AD from exile on the island of Patmos. Now, before being sent into exile by Domitian, who was the Roman emperor at the time, John actually served as the pastor and overseer at the church in Ephesus, and he served there for a few years. Beyond that, he actually oversaw all of the churches in his area in Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey. So all of these churches knew John as their overseer, a pastor, and they would have been familiar with him, and he would have been familiar with each one of those churches' circumstances. Now, in verse 5 and 6, there are seven titles of Christ listed out. We have the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, him who loved us, him who washed us from our sins in his own blood, our great king and priest, and the amen. That is a title of Christ. Christ's present and future work is also highlighted here. His present work, he loves us, washes us, makes us to be kings and priests. His future work, behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. That is through verse 7. 
Now in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There's that same phrase that was just used to denote the Father. Jesus is using it saying, I am he who was, he who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty, equating himself with God. Don't let anyone tell you that Jesus never claims to be God. That is very, very wrong. In verse 9 through 18, we have this vision from John, and it's of the post-incarnate Christ, and he is occupying his glorified body. He is seen specifically as the great high priest, and he is pictured as being among his churches. Verse 9 through 18 contain this first vision that John has. Notice that in verse 11, that the whole book of Revelation was to be sent to each of the seven churches. They each got the whole thing. Not just the letter that we'll look at here in a second that was addressed to them. They got all the other letters, the greeting, and all of the other parts of Revelation. Each church receives the whole revelation. In verse 19, this is the key to understanding the whole book. The divine outline. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. That is chapter 1. I'm going to go through it real quick again. The person of Jesus Christ the things which you have seen. This is John's vision of the glorified Christ. And this is a picture of how Christ is currently. This is who Christ is right now. We see him in the Gospels in his incarnate body. That's how we get a picture of him in the Gospels. And there's really not a physical description of him in the Gospels. Did you notice that? The closest thing we get is that it says he was nothing special. There was nothing comely about him. So what does that do? Oh, it makes me relate to him, quite honestly. Um, I think that that lack of description there of Jesus's fleshly body is so that we can all relate to him. He's not tall. He's not skinny. He's not fat. He's not short. You know, doesn't even, doesn't give you anything. We can all relate to that. But I don't know about you, but I can't relate to eyes like a flame of fire. Some of us can relate to the the white hair, but that's about it. (laughs) This is an entirely different picture that we get to see of Christ. Chapters 2 and 3, that's the letters to the churches, talking about the possession of Jesus Christ, the things which are. This was the time in which John was living in the church age, and we still, in 2023, are living in the church age. Chapters 2 and 3 contain Christ's letters to the churches, and that's remarkable. We'll we'll look at why. Chapters 4 through 22 is the program of Jesus Christ. These are the things which will take place after this, that is, after the church things. 
in verse 20, Christ actually clarifies for us what the seven stars and the seven lampstands are. He says that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, I do want to make a quick note. It is a lampstand. It's not a candlestick. I believe it's the King James that calls it a candlestick. Candles weren't around until much after this. Also, candles are self-consuming. You light a candle and it burns itself out. A lamp is fed by oil, which is consistently a picture of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. These are lampstands fed with oil, not candlesticks. And the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. Now we get into the possession of Jesus Christ. Each of these letters is addressed to the what it calls the angel of each of these churches. And there is not complete agreement as to what that refers to. But there are two main ideas. Maybe the angel that is set over these churches is getting this letter from God. It's possible. Maybe this word agalos, translated angels, is talking about the pastors of these churches. Agalos is literally a messenger from God. That's what that word conveys. Now, that would certainly fit a pastor. And in my estimation, a heavenly angel would already know what was going on in the church. He wouldn't need to be informed by a letter from Christ. So I tend to think that pastors are being addressed here. And that is my own distorted opinion. You formulate your own. Um, These letters to the churches are special because it's the only time in Scripture when Jesus addresses churches directly. Okay? Sure, we can pull lessons from the epistles. We can pull lessons from the Old Testament, every part of Scripture. But Jesus is literally speaking to churches here. You remember he ascended back to heaven with the Father before the institution of the church was formed. This is the only words of Jesus we have to the church directly. So we should pay attention to them. They're very instructive to us, and they're very easy to apply because we're not looking at some Old Testament you know, law and trying to apply it to us today. We're looking at something that was written to someone in the same age, in the same dispensation that we're in right now. It's very easy to take lessons from these. Now, each of these seven letters share seven design elements. We'll run through them quickly. Seven design elements. First, the name of the church. That is always instructive to the content of the letter. Two, the title Christ uses of himself. Also instructive to the content of the letter. And in all of the letters except for one, he references characteristics that are mentioned of him in chapter one. Third design element is a commendation. What they did good. 
Fourth is a condemnation, what they needed to work on. Fifth is an exhortation. Sixth is a promise to the overcomer. And seventh is this closing phrase that we see, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that one sentence is very instructive as to who this is written to. Now, these letters are also like ogres or onions because they have layers. It's okay to laugh. That was meant to be funny. I know I say everything the same way, but that was supposed to be a joke. There are four levels or layers of application that we can glean from each one of these letters. First, the local application. These were real churches in Asia Minor that had real problems and real people. Jesus addresses these problems and addresses the good things and the bad things done by these congregations. The second level of application is admonitory. These letters are admonitory to all churches. All seven letters were sent to all seven churches. They could see the report cards of the other churches. And in each letter sits that phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Churches is plural. They were not just supposed to hear what the Spirit was saying to their church, but to all the churches. They're meant for more than just the congregation they were addressed to. These lessons apply to all churches, including ours. The third level of application is personal. Take your right hand, grab your earlobe if you have one. If you've got an ear, this is addressed to you. He who has an ear, let him hear. Of course, I say that jokingly, but there is a personal application to each of us in each of these letters. We don't want to come to this text with the mindset that we're reading something that only applied to believers 1,900 years ago because it won't land where it's meant to. We won't hear the application to ourselves. These letters are addressed to you personally and me personally. Now, this last level of application, the fourth level, is not universally agreed upon. I happen to think that it fits. That is the prophetic application. These letters serve as a prophetic outline of roughly 2,000 years of church history. And if these letters were in any other order, this would not work out. But in the order that Christ gives them, it does work. So going through the ages of the church, the letter to Ephesus represents the apostolic church from about AD 30 to 100. Smyrna the persecuted church. Right after the apostles have died off, the Roman government started persecuting them very hard. So that's the persecuted church, AD 100 to about 313, when Constantine issues that edict of toleration. Pergamos, that perverted marriage, that represents the state church from about 313 to 590. Thyatira represents the papal church 
Um, some call it the medieval church, same thing. A.D. 590 to about 1517. The Church of Sardis represents the Reformed Church, the denominational church, A.D. 1517 to about 1790. The Church of Philadelphia represents the Missionary Church, about A.D. 1730 to around 1900. And Laodicea, which we are living in now, the Apostate Church, from about A.D. 1900 to whenever the rapture comes. So that's a view that's held fairly commonly among Bible teachers, but not universally. And we're not going to take any more time on chapters 2 and 3, because I actually did an overview of just those two chapters quite a while back, so you can take a listen to that if you want some more details. There's so much good stuff in there. We just don't have time to go into it this morning. They are also, in my estimation, the most important chapters in Revelation, chapters 2 and 3 because they are so directly applicable. Now we're moving into chapter 4, and this starts the program of Jesus Christ. This is our third major division in our outline. And we start off by seeing this scene in heaven. John is taken in spirit to heaven, and he gets to witness the throne room of the universe, the throne of God in heaven. These are the things which will come after these things, after the church things, referring to chapter 1, verse 19, the divine outline. You'll notice that the first words in chapter 4 are, after these things, metatauta. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, this last part of... Revelation and the bulk of the book is what people generally think of when they hear the book of Revelation. It's the prophetic things, the visions, the signs, the prophecies that John receives from the angel. And the angel received from Christ, and Christ received from the Father. We get a picture of the church in heaven with Christ. Chapters 4 and 5 give us this scene in heaven, and John is shown several things while he's up there. The throne of God, the 24 elders. We remember the 24 elders we decided represented the church. You know, the four living creatures, this book with seven seals. In chapter 5, verse 4, John says, So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. That's the problem. No one was found worthy to open this scroll. And it's hard for us to really understand what the implications of that are. But evidently, John knew exactly what that meant, because it says he wept much. Literally, he sobbed convulsively. He couldn't, couldn't control himself because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. The problem is that no man was found worthy. The solution 
was Jesus. Jesus is worthy to open this scroll and to redeem the earth. Now, another thing that Christ see, or John sees is Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb that has been slain. In verse 5 through 10, a myriad of angels of heaven joins the song of praise and redemption. This beautiful song that breaks out in heaven. And then universal worship of the Savior and sovereign of the universe. And that wraps up chapter 5. Now, that is the precursor, the scene that we get before the tribulation is introduced. Into chapter 6 begins the tribulation. But before we continue into that, I want to reiterate something that I mentioned in the past, but we'll talk about it again. There are a lot of ways that people tend to refer to this period of time. But the most accurate and descriptive term is probably the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, that is truly what this seven-year period is. The Great Tribulation as a term was coined by Jesus himself in his discourse in Matthew 24. But the Great Tribulation, how Jesus used it, was specifically referring to the second half of the 70th week of Daniel. And we'll look at Daniel's prophecy of weeks for a second because it helps us with the timing of events here. And we want to make sure that we're clear on that. As we study the tribulation, often one of the biggest questions we have is why? What is God's purpose in all of this? And that question is answered for us straight from the text in Daniel 9. This comes just before Daniel's prophecy of weeks. So we're going to stop off at Daniel 9.24. And here there seems to be six reasons given for what will transpire during the history of Israel. Now, I do want to be clear here. This verse, Daniel 9.24, is speaking of all 70 weeks of history. It's not just speaking of the 70th, what we call the tribulation, So this includes the entire scope of Israel's history. What is the purpose for that? But the tribulation certainly falls under Israel's history. You'll see several of these reasons for the 70 weeks will very obviously pertain to the tribulation. So let's look at those. Daniel 9.24, 70 weeks are determined for your people, that is Israel, and for your holy city, which is Jerusalem, to finish the transgression... There's one. To make an end of sins, two. To make reconciliation for iniquity, three. To bring in everlasting righteousness, four. To seal up vision and prophecy, five. And six, to anoint the most holy. To finish the transgression, the first reason for the tribulation or these 70 weeks, this time will put an end to the transgression of Israel. Remember, we're dealing specifically with Israel here. What is the transgression of Israel? The rejection of her Messiah, of Jesus. And during this time, great numbers of Jews will 
end up turning their hearts towards Christ, putting an end to that transgression. Reason two, to make an end of sins. Make an end literally means to seal up sins. At the end of this period of tribulation, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. That is certainly sealing up sin. Reason three, to make reconciliation for iniquity. I think this is another reference to Israel's iniquity of rejecting her Messiah. To bring in everlasting righteousness. When the tribulation is finished, Christ will return to set up his kingdom on the earth. This tribulation period is the antecedent to the millennial reign of Christ. Tribulation comes, then the millennial reign. Everlasting righteousness. The fifth reason, to seal up vision and prophecy. And I think this reason is twofold. First, there will be no need for visions and prophecies once Israel comes to Christ. Second, this time period is the punctuation to all the Old and New Testament prophecies relating to it. It's literally a time period. A punctuation. Okay, there we go. It seals up and fulfills all of those prophecies that were pointing to it, which there's a lot. The last reason is to anoint the most holy. It's a very obvious reference to the millennium again, which is the consummation of the tribulation. That's what it all leads up to. And when the most holy will be anointed as the rightful heir and the ruler of earth. So that's why. That's why the tribulation has to happen. Now, let's read this prophecy of weeks in Daniel 9, 25 through 27. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Karat. That literally means executed. But not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. And till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. You're thinking, what in the world just happened? It, it is a little bit enigmatic, but we can work through it. And we actually understand fairly well now, living in the, the time that we do, what that all means. Most of it has already come to pass. The, the vast majority of the years that it's talking about have already passed us. I'm going to focus in on verse 27. We can't get through the whole thing. Verse 27, then he, speaking of this prince that shall come, which is mentioned in the previous verse, that is Antichrist. Then he, Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many, that is Israel, for one week. 
Now we need to understand that a week here is talking about seven years. It's a week of years. Now we have a week of days, which is seven days. They had several weeks. You know, the different laws were concerning seven Sabbaths and everything. This is a week of years, seven years. Verse 27 starts out by telling us that Antichrist will sign a seven-year covenant or some kind of a peace treaty with Israel. And this event marks the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. This is the mark of the beginning of what we call the tribulation, when Antichrist signs this covenant with Israel. And that's very important to understand because the rapture does not mark the beginning of the tribulation. There's this unspecified length of time between the rapture of the church and the beginning of the 70th week. I tend to think it's not very long because, you know, it says over and over, these things will happen rapidly. These will shortly come to pass. It won't be long. It could be hours between the rapture and the signing of this treaty. Could be days. Could be weeks. I don't see it being pushed out further than a few weeks, to be honest. That restraining influence of the Holy Spirit through the church, when that is removed, things are going to move quick because there is nothing holding evil back. This peace treaty between Antichrist and I'm sure his forces, his faction, and Israel will mark the beginning of this 70th week. There is this certain order that things have to take place in. And I've had people ask me if Christians should expect to see the Antichrist, um, like that will be a sign of the times. You know, sh- should I be looking for him? Should I keep an eye out for him? I fully expect us to be out of here before this man of sin, the Antichrist, is revealed. Um, You know, that's not to say that he's not living today. He may be. He may not be. Um, I I mentioned my thoughts on that before, but I won't go back there. But this man of sin cannot be revealed until the restrainer is taken out of the way. And that idea comes from 2 Thessalonians 2.7. But starting in verse 5, 2 Thessalonians 2.5, it says... Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? This is Paul writing to the Thessalonians. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time, talking about Antichrist. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, notice he is capital, capitalized. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The restrainer, as Paul talks about, I'm convinced is the Holy Spirit exerting his restraining influence through the believers that he currently indwells. That's you and me. When he is taken out of the way by way of the rapture, taking the church off the world, the world The lawless one, Antichrist, may then and only then be revealed. 
And he has to be revealed before he can sign this treaty with Israel and so on and so forth. All that to say that the rapture is the next thing we're looking for. We're not looking for Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. Uh, That is my answer if you ask, should I be looking for Antichrist? No, look for Jesus Christ. You know, keep our eyes fixed on him. If we're so focused on Antichrist, what is that going to do to us? You know, it it's probably not going to be good. We are told over and over and over to fix our gaze on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And he's coming soon. Now, back in Daniel 9, 27, Prophecy of Weeks, it says, but in the middle of the week, that is in the middle of this seven-year period of the treaty, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. In the middle of this seven-year peace treaty, Antichrist will break it. That's three and a half years after signing it. And apparently this treaty involved reinstating the Levitical sacrifices because this says that he brings an end to sacrifice and offering when he breaks that covenant. Those sacrifices and offerings are not occurring today. So they will have to be reinstituted. By the way, the sacrifices that it speaks of would require the temple in Jerusalem. That's why it's such a big deal that we're seeing moves right now to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. This speaks of the event that we call, and Jesus calls, the abomination of desolation. At this three and a half year mark into the 70th week, when Antichrist breaks his treaty, he will set himself up in the temple to be worshipped as God. And we can again look to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 for more details on this event. This time we're going back a few verses, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is talking about this abomination of desolation. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Do you understand what a statement that is? That is quite the statement. This guy claims to be all that is called God. Of course, to the Christian, this is Christ. We colloquially call him Antichrist. And by the way, that title for him is only used once or twice only by John in 1 John. So that's not a very common title of him in the Bible. That's a side note. To the Christian, he presents himself as Christ. To the Jew, he claims to be Yahweh. 
To the Muslim, he claims to be Allah. To the Hindu, so on and so forth. He claims to be all that is called God. And Paul says that he's going to set himself up in the temple of God, the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And that happens three and a half years into the 70th week. Back in Daniel 9.27, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. If three and a half years is the halfway point, how much more time has to pass? Three and a half years. Good. So three and a half years after Antichrist breaks that treaty, sets himself up in the temple as God, Christ comes. He makes his coming in power and great glory. Okay, that's our overview of the tribulation. Let's walk through it real quick. There are three rounds, if you will, of judgments. The seals, the trumpets, then the bowls. This graphic up here shows you kind of the time frame that we're looking at. This is the halfway point in the tribulation, Antichrist setting himself up as God. We have the seal judgments, which are broken loose in the first half, followed by the trumpets in the first half. That last trumpet happens right around this midway point, and then all of the bowl judgments are contained within the last three and a half years, which Christ calls the Great Tribulation. Don't let commentators or anybody trip you up by using the term Great Tribulation to refer to the whole thing. Know that specifically the Great Tribulation is the last three and a half years. And that comes from Jesus. In his Matthew 24 discourse, he calls it the Great Tribulation, but he specifies that it's after the abomination of desolation occurs. Okay, Great Tribulation lasts three and a half years. The bold judgments, and they look like vials in this. That's another translation of the word bowls, but they're actually bowls. These will be poured out, I believe, towards the very end of this last three and a half years. When you look at the bowl judgments, they're so severe that it cannot last a long time. We also see in the text some compounding effects of those judgments. So some of the earlier judgments, the effects are still felt several judgments down the road. And so that makes me think that they're very close together. Jesus also said that if the days weren't shortened, that no flesh would survive, referring to this time period. Okay, let's throw up that heptatic structure graphic, and we'll keep talking about the tribulation. These rounds of judgments, the seals, trumpets, and bowls, are structured in the text in such a way that makes it necessary for them to follow after the previous one. There's a linear sequence to these events. Some think that they're all concurrent with each other. They're all happening at the same time. That is not the case. 
And this way that we look at it is called the heptatic structure. It's a structure of sevens. Of course, there are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Let's get into this opening of the seven-sealed book, the scroll, more accurately. Codices didn't come around until a little bit later. So like a book with pages is a codex. This would be talking about a scroll. These seven seals on the scroll are opened in heaven by Jesus Christ. Remember in chapter 5, we got a, got a glimpse of that. And John is witnessing the opening of these seals in heaven. And we'll see these horsemen of the apocalypse. These horsemen are described from John's heavenly perspective as horses and horsemen. Please understand that what John is seeing as horsemen symbolically are bringing very real judgments and very real effects on the earth. They are not just symbolic. Although there is symbolism here in the horses and the horsemen, the effects of these horsemen are very much felt by those who are still on the earth. In chapter 6 of Revelation, the first seal is broken loose by Jesus. That releases a rider on a white horse. Commentators struggle with this because he's riding a white horse. Some think that it's Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't come in until chapter 19. This is a pseudo-Christ, someone who is pretending to be Christ. Who's that? Antichrist. Literally means pseudo-Christ, or the instead of Christ. This is the Antichrist. He comes on the scene. The second seal is broken loose, which releases a rider on a red horse. Red is symbolic of war. This rider of the horse was also given a great sword, which also represents war. So after the Antichrist comes war, the third seal releases a rider on a black horse. Black represents famine. This is a famine that is following war, which we see throughout history. That's the natural progression of it. The fourth seal, rider on a pale horse. It may say pale or green. The word in the Greek is chloros, and that is a pale green color, like death. And this rider is symbolizing death. Power was given to this one over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Now, don't necessarily think that this is four-footed beasts. There are also microscopic beasts. I'm just going to throw that out there. Bacteria, whatnot. The fifth seal. We see these martyrs who are praying to God that they would be avenged. And this is the fifth seal. The sixth seal. Cosmic disturbances. There was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became like blood. Stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. There's a lot of stuff happening here with the earth, with the planets in general, the stars. Key in on verse 17. 
some dialogue of the mighty men of earth. They say, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That tells me that this is God's wrath being poured out on the earth as early as the sixth seal. God's wrath is being poured out here. Throughout history, we've faced tribulation in a general sense, hardships. Our hardships as Christians today come from our three enemies. Do you all 'all know our three enemies? The flesh, the world, and the devil. Those are our enemies right now. And those three enemies create hardship for us. Tribulation in a general sense. Here, in the 70th week, this tribulation, this hardship is coming from God. It's God's wrath being poured out on the earth. We are not appointed to wrath. Sure, we'll have hardship, but it doesn't come from God like this does. We will not suffer his wrath. His wrath was poured out on Christ on the cross on our behalf. Chapter 7 is one of these parenthetical portions. It's giving us greater detail about the period it already talked about. Okay, in your outline, you'll, you'll see something. It says under G1, reason for the interlude between the sixth and seventh seals. This caption, if you will, makes it seem like J. Vernon McGee believes the sealing of the 144,000 occurs between the sixth and seventh seals being opened. I tend to think that that sealing happened before any of the seals are opened, before any judgment comes on the world. I'm not going to be dogmatic here. I don't know for sure. But there is something that challenges my view, and that is the multitude that comes out of the Great Tribulation. It's talked about in the second half of chapter 7. If this sealing of the 144,000 takes place before the tribulation starts, how are these, this multitude coming out of the great tribulation, how does that work if it's before? I don't know. I'm just making you aware of these things so you can do your own study. I hope that makes, I hope that made sense. The second half of chapter seven, we see this multitude who comes out of the great tribulation John asks one of the elders, who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And, oh, the elders ask John that. John says, I don't know, you know. So he says back to John, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Okay. Chapter 8. The seventh seal is broken open. And that leads to the seven trumpets. The seventh seal being broken gives these angels permission to get their trumpets and get ready to sound. This is one of the reasons I say that they're all sequential. They're not uh, concurrent. And we have this heptatic structure. We've got six, the parentheses, which is chapter seven, then the seventh seal. The seventh seal breaks out into the seven trumpets. The the six trumpets are sounded. There's a parenthesis. That one's a lot longer, chapters 10 through 14. Then the seventh trumpet. And that, in a way, brings about the bowl judgments. 
So I like to picture it like a firework. You know, you see one firework go up, it breaks into these seven pieces, and then the seventh breaks off into seven more pieces. So you have this compounding effect. The seventh seal is opened, and the angels are ready to sound with their trumpets. The first trumpet, trees are burnt. The second trumpet, seas become blood. The third trumpet, fresh water becomes bitter. Fourth trumpet, sun, moon, and stars are smitten. The fifth trumpet, there's a fallen star and the plague of locusts. The sixth trumpet, angels loosed at the river Euphrates. And then we have this interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets. It takes up several chapters, chapters 10 through 14-ish. Then we have the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, 15 through 19. It's actually right in the middle of that parenthetical portion. And then it picks back up on some details. Chapters 12 and 13, those chapters are going to give us a list of seven performers during the Great Tribulation, these personages. The first is the woman. This woman is Israel. We have the red dragon, which is clearly identified as Satan. We have the child of the woman, the child of Israel, which is Jesus Christ. Michael, the archangel. The remnant of Israel. The wild beast out of the sea, which is a political power and a person. So that kind of constitutes the kingdom of the beast and the beast, Antichrist himself. The wild beast out of the earth. And that is the, we'll call him the high priest of the Antichrist religion. That brings us through chapter 13. I told you we would start moving quick. Now, chapter 14 takes this picture towards the end of the tribulation. We see the lamb with his 144,000. There's an angel bringing a proclamation of the everlasting gospel. All throughout the tribulation, God is trying to get men to repent. You know, he's turning up the knob, sometimes literally turning up the heat. He's getting men uncomfortable so that they'll turn to him, but they're so, so stubborn. And we see that again and again. They would not repent of their sins. They continued doing evil. Here in chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, this angel proclaims the everlasting gospel to all people, tongues, tribes, nations in each of their own languages. So everyone at this point has heard the gospel in his or her own language. The next angel pronounces judgment on Babylon, speaking of future things as though they are present. That's what faith gets gets you, by the way. Pronouncement of judgment on those who receive the mark of the beast. That's what the next angel brings. And then we see in verse 13 of chapter 14, praise for those who die in the Lord. And at the very end of chapter 14, there's this preview 
of the scene at Armageddon. Revelation 15 and 16 contain the bowl judgments, the pouring out of the bowls. The first bowl, Revelation 16, 2, is loathsome sores. Then the second bowl, the oceans turn into blood. The third bowl, fresh water turns into blood. The fourth bowl, men are scorched with heat. The sun is intensified. Pouring out of the fifth bowl, darkness on the kingdom of the beast. Pouring out of the sixth bowl, the Euphrates is dried up. And it mentions the kings from the east. The drying up of the Euphrates makes way for the kings of the east. Then we have this little bitty parenthetical portion. It's easy to miss, but it's the words of Christ. Uh, We see that in chapter 16, verse 15. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. That is the little insertion between the sixth bowl and the seventh bowl. Seventh bowl is that great earthquake and hail. And then moving into chapters 17 and 18, the apostate church in the great tribulation. Please be aware that there will be institutions who call themselves churches in the tribulation. There will not be true believers in Christ from the church age into the tribulation. That is to say, there will be an apostate version of the church in the tribulation. You know, we saw the woman who rides the beast. The popularity of Antichrist will be used by this apostate religious system in chapter 17, the woman riding the beast. The woman, the apostate system, rides on the back of the beast, the Antichrist, to rise into prominence. And then also in chapter 17, it says that Antichrist will turn on that woman, on the religious system, and I believe that is when he presents himself as God in the Holy of Holies, in the temple of God. Chapter 17, the apostate church in the Great Tribulation. Chapter 18, the political and commercial Babylon is judged. And then in chapter 19, the big climax of it all, the whole Bible, in fact, we see the bride of the lamb and the marriage supper of the lamb. And then Christ returns in power and great glory. It says a name is written on his vesture and on his thigh, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's who he is. Then he crushes this rebellion at Armageddon. Satan is bound for a thousand years. The saints of the great tribulation reign with Christ for 1,000 years. This is the millennium now. These 1,000 years, Satan is bound. Saints reign with Christ. Satan is then loosed after this millennium period. 
At that time, Satan is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone to join his two compatriots, the two beasts that we saw in chapter 13. Then there is this great white throne judgment where the lost are judged and follow Satan into that lake of fire. Chapters 21 and 22 are some of my favorite chapters. That's talking about the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, the new creation, in effect. And these pieces of new creation usher in eternity for us. The new Jerusalem is the eternal abode of the bride of Christ, you and I, if we're Christians. And God dwells with man there. And I won't dwell much on this because we've talked about it the last few weeks. The river of the water of life and the tree of life are situated in this new Jerusalem. They're free for us to partake of. And then in chapter 22, starting in verse 6, we see this last promise and this last warning. Christ is coming soon. Don't you tamper with the book of this prophecy or the prophecy of this book. Don't add to it. Don't take, it away, take away from it. That final warning. And then a final promise and prayer. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And that's how John wraps up this writing that he is supposed to send to the churches of Asia. Now, I know that was insanely fast, and um, we should have a fire extinguisher back there if you need it. What do we want to glean from the book of Revelation as a whole. What do we want to glean from it? There are two things that I really zoned in on as parting lessons from Revelation. One, Revelation is not a scary book to Christians. The scary stuff happens to unbelievers after Christians are caught up to be with the Lord. If you're not a believer, I hope it is a little scary. I hope it pushes you towards Christ. And you can begin a personal relationship with Christ today. And that's the only way that you get into this new Jerusalem. It's the only way that you can avoid the wrath of God is if you take that gift that's been extended to you. Christ died, was put under the wrath of God in our place. And if we accept that and we place our faith in him, we do not have to suffer the wrath of God. That's the only way you don't have to suffer the wrath of God. A personal relationship with Christ. He says at the very end of Revelation, whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Whoever desires, it doesn't matter who you are. 
Point one being, Revelation is not a scary book to Christians. It should be comforting because we know our destiny. The second point, we are living near the end. We should live as though Christ could come for us at any moment because he most certainly can. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're not looking even for the Babylonian system, this apostate religious system. We're not looking for a one-world government, although we see we see it, even though we're not looking for it. All of that happens after the rapture. The governments coalesce into a single one-world government after the rapture. What does it tell you that we can see it happening now? It means the rapture is just that much closer. We're getting there. And that is what I'm looking forward to. My eyes are peeled. You know, I am ready to see Christ in the air. I'm ready to be home because it's uncomfortable down here. (laughs) Yeah, it's uncomfortable. I'm ready to look into his eyes, sit with him and chat. You know, it's going to be wonderful. That's the book of Revelation. It's a, a great comfort, a great promise to us who are in Christ. And I just encourage you not to let this be the end of your study of Revelation. You can take a break from it if you want to. But sometime soon, go back through it. Give it a once over. Just read it through. It's 22 chapters take me about five hours, but you, it'll probably take 30 minutes. Read through it and let God speak to you. He's promised a blessing to those who read it. And you've heard now me reading you the entire book of Revelation. You know, throughout all of these months, you've heard the entire book of Revelation. That's a blessing to you, the hearer. And those who keep, who do, but who also guard the things that are contained here. Don't let this be the end of your study of Revelation. But it is the the end of our study. And next week we'll be back in Genesis. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I hope we'll see you next week. Let's wrap up this morning in a word of prayer.